Good afternoon, Jerry. Ah, good afternoon, Carl. Good to hear your voice and welcome to A Life in Biography. We're going to be discussing uh, your biographical subject, who you call a professor of apocalypse. Uh, before we get to your subject itself, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you uh, got to do this book. I am an intellectual historian by training. Uh, I spent much of my academic life uh, as a professor of history at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. Early on in my academic life, uh, I was uh, planning a doctoral dissertation, and the first topic that I was going to work on was a history of, inter of intellectuals uh, who in the 1950s and 1960s were involved with what was called the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was an international organization of intellectuals, some of whom had been communists or radical leftists who had become anti-communists, mostly anti-communist liberals. And they included people in the United States like Daniel Bell and Irving Kristol. And in, in England, people like uh, Isaiah Berlin and Stephen Spender. And in Germany, um, people like Richard Leventhal, a former communist who had become a, an anti-communist socialist, and people in France as well. So I was going to do that topic. And I had read somewhere that right not long after the Second World War, a number of these American intellectuals, Irving Kristol, his wife, Gertrude Himmelfarb, Daniel Bell, Nathan Glazer, and others had studied in a seminar with a fellow by the name of Jacob Taubus. Uh, they, had this, they, had, uh, this, they had been part of a Maimonides seminar that he had run, that is to say on the, the greatest um, Jewish philosopher and intellectual of the Middle Ages. So I felt I filed that idea away. And while I was in the early stages of that project in 1980, I was visiting in Jerusalem and my brother-in-law who had studied with this fellow Jacob Taubus in Berlin, brought Jacob Taubus home while I was visiting. And I asked Jacob, I met with Taubus for about an hour and I talked to him about the seminar that he had run with these intellectuals who subsequently became um, central figures in American intellectual life. And then I didn't think about it for a long time. I ended up working on a different project entirely on uh, intellectuals whose, uh, German intellectuals whose criticisms of liberal democratic capitalist societies had led them towards national socialism. And then the experience of those people under national socialism and their uh, disillusionment with it and their de-radicalization thereafter. So, uh, and while I was working on that around 1987, a little book came out with the name of this fellow Jacob Taubus as the author. And it was about his relationship to Carl Schmitt. Carl Schmitt was a distinguished German political and legal theorist um, who was a critic of liberal democracy from the right, who in 1933 had thrown in his lot with the National Socialist regime, and who had had a, 
a substantial intellectual career after 1945 in West Germany as well. And this little booklet was about Taubus's relationship to Carl Schmitt. And Taubus was a, a Jewish intellectual um, and a Jewish intellectual of the left. And I found that little book quite puzzling and didn't think about the issue for many years. And then I wrote a number of other books, uh, mostly having to do with intellectuals and uh, how they thought about capitalism. Uh, and in the process of that, I, I wrote some more about, um, about uh, some of these right-wing intellectuals and left-wing critiques of capitalism from people like Herbert Marcuse. And then around 2003, I was starting to work on an issue that increasingly interested me, namely uh, the intersection between the critique of religion and political thought in modern Europe, starting from uh, Hobbes and Spinoza in the 17th century and continuing on to people like Nietzsche in the 19th century. And in the court, while I was thinking about that, I went to a lecture about Leo Strauss, uh, a political philosopher of German Jewish origin who migrated to the United States just before the Second World War and eventually became a very prominent thinker. And uh, there was a talk about him given by one of his students in the course of which uh, the lecturer mentioned Leo Strauss's uh, famous analysis of what he called persecution and the art of writing, which had to do with his interpretation of Maimonides and the larger issue of how intellectuals under oppressive regimes or who have a kind of dangerous message to convey uh, will often do so in sort of Aesopian terms, by analogies, by suggesting things between the lines that they can't say explicitly because it's not, say, orthodox and politically acceptable. And after that talk, um, uh, I, I noticed that in the audience were Irving Kristol and Gertrude Himmelfarb, who I who I had already gotten to know, and who were by then um, in their 70s. And I went up to them afterwards and I asked them, do you remember this seminar that you did with Jacob Taubus on Maimonides uh, after the Second World War? And much to my surprise, their eyes lit up and Irving Kristol, who had known most of the major intellectuals of the 20th century said, do I remember it? He was the only really charismatic intellectual I've ever known. And then he talked some more and he said, you know, maybe somebody should write something about him because Taubus <laughs> in 1987. And Gertrude Himmelfarb, <clears throat> who was an intellectual historian, said, um, maybe it would be, maybe it should be you, Jerry. So I, and then a few weeks later, I, I was at another seminar and I met with um, a leading left-wing um, sociologist, Norman Birnbaum, and we got to talking about Jacob Taubus, and it turned out he knew Jacob Taubus very well, and he had known him together with Susan Zontag, who you've written about, and Philip Reef, her then-husband in the 1950s, who I'd also written about. And, uh, and he said one of the people who knew Taubus at a later stage was Leon Wieseltier, who was then the 
culture editor of the New Republic. So I went and talked to Leon Wieseltier and he encouraged me to think about uh, writing a study of Taubes. So at the time, I have to say, I, I didn't really know what I was getting into. That is to say, <laughs> I, I knew that this fellow Taubes was described as a charismatic intellectual. I knew from some research I'd done online that he'd been in contact with a remarkable range of 20th century intellectuals in uh, German-speaking Europe, in France, in the United States, uh, and in Israel. And uh, I thought to myself, um, oh, and I knew that he one of the issues that he was very interested in was this issue that was increasingly interesting uh, me about the relationship between um, biblical criticism and the historical understanding of religion and religious faith and the question of religion and its relationship to politics. So I thought to myself, uh, well, this seems to be a, a way of dealing with some of these intellectual issues that I'd been dealing with, but in the context of someone who, since he uh, functioned in the in German-speaking Europe and in the United States and sometimes in France and Israel, um, that this would be a way of uh, telling a good deal of the intellectual history of the 20th century focused on this uh, charismatic and colorful uh, and, in, as I came to find out later, uh, in many respects rather problematic thinker. And last but not least, I should say, I thought to myself, um, there's not many people who could write this kind of study who've done work in, uh, you know, the intellectual controversy, intellectual and political controversies in the United States and in German-speaking Europe and in Israel. And I know those contexts and I know the relevant languages. So maybe I should try my hand out at it. It was kind of an entrepreneurial experiment. So <laughs> the inception of the idea went back to very late uh, 2003, and the book finally appeared in English uh, in the summer of 2002, uh, 2022, and will be appearing in German in December of 2022. Well, I think the story you tell is a story that many biographers could tell in the sense that uh, they don't start out necessarily writing a biography. They become interested in a subject or a set of ideas. Mm -hmm. Certain personalities are involved. And I think you're, you're also absolutely right. Um, you had the right background for it. Mm -hmm. uh, I've always been intrigued with Jacob Taubes, partly, well, you know why, because I wrote, my wife and I wrote a biography of Susan Sontag, and he had an enormous impact on her. But mm -hmm. I can't imagine myself writing a biography of Taubes because I simply don't have the background. I don't have the languages. I don't have the context. I didn't meet the people that you met. Mm -hmm. So I think that you're absolutely indispensable in that sense. Um, do you think one of the things uh, I take away from what you said so far is it would be pretty difficult to write about Jacob Taubes simply in terms of an intellectual biography or an intellectual study mm -hmm. um, to separate the man from his ideas, which many philosophers like to do that with literary figures. They're very distrustful of biography. It, it, it seems to me your book is getting at um, 
you can't you can't tear away those human shreds <laughs> that are that are clinging to Taubus's thought. At least so it seems to me. Yes, the, uh, I should say that there are a couple of people who um, have tried to write even book length studies of Taubus's thought. Um, and certainly many articles about one or another element of his thought um, with relatively little reference to his uh, biography and his persona. But Taubus, you know, there, there, are, there are thinkers who have certain premises that they then develop in the course of their lives into a more or less coherent body of work and of thought. Um, Jacob Taubus was not among those. That is to say, he had certain interests uh, and predilections that continued from his uh, doctoral dissertation through the end of his life. Uh, but he didn't have a coherent theory of them. So some of the issues that, um, that interested him a lot were uh, questions of the relationship between religion and politics, uh, the plausibility or implausibility of religious belief in the shadow of the Holocaust, which he had experienced uh, at second hand, as it were. Um, the, whole the whole question of, uh, or his, he had an ongoing interest in what you might call antinomian movements, that is to say, movements that were religious movements and then secular political movements that that uh, challenged established norms and rules and institutions. And he had a, a sense for um, religious movements that did that in the history of uh, both Judaism and especially of Christianity. Yes. Uh, yeah. and, um, and, uh, but, and But all of this went together with a very antinomian personality of his own, or which, uh, that is somebody who by virtue of their psychological dispositions, as well as by virtue of their sort of intellectual beliefs, was given to challenging rules and norms and institutions. So uh, I certainly um, came to see that there was a kind of inextricable connection between the personality and the ideas, and that uh, the ideas could take various forms um, but the uh, underlying um, cultural and, intel and uh, psychological propensities uh, were there from very early on up, up till the very end of his life. So that goes from 1923 to, uh, to 1987. There's, there's one other thing we haven't mentioned uh, I want to mm -hmm. put into the mix, so to speak. Yes. He was trained as a rabbi mm -hmm. uh, and from a rabbinical family. Yes, uh, and uh, also trained as a philosopher, obviously, um, a rabbi who never had a congregation, if I'm correct, uh, and who, in a sense, wherever he went, uh, established a kind of congregation around him. Uh, and, and part of it had to do with what you describe as his charisma. What was so charismatic about him? Uh, so, as you say, uh, Taubus, um Taubus actually came from a very distinguished rabbinic family uh, of uh, Talmudic scholars on one side and uh, Hasidic rebbe's uh, on the other side. 
Um, he was, and he spent some time as a young man in a, in a uh, yeshiva, an institute of higher Jewish education in Switzerland during the Second World War, at a time when all the rest of the yeshivot, uh, all the rest of the yeshivas in his, in Europe were being destroyed by the Nazis. Um, and he did get rabbinical ordination, um, uh, as well as a PhD in um, the fields of sociology and philosophy. Uh, uh, but as you say, he never actually practiced. He never practiced as a rabbi, but he maintained this uh, notion that he ought to be some kind of a, a spiritual guide. Yeah. Uh, not only to Jews, but uh, to non-Jews as well. In, in fact, especially to non-Jews. And uh, in some ways, um, he was trying to uh, live up to a legacy that had been thrust upon him uh, as a as a leader of Jewish thought, um, but he did so in a way that was uh, that was antinomian, that was uh, that both questioned, that both revolted against um, the demands of Jewish law, and that was fundamentally um, skeptical of and critical of. Uh, all sorts of institutions. He also, I should say, and I suppose we'll get into this more, um, lived much of his erotic life in a way that was, say, unbecoming to a rabbi. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, he, he had a, it, it's very interesting. He had a, um, he had all these erotic interests in women, uh, mm -hmm. but he was also interested, uh, definitely interested in women's brains. In, yeah. in the way women thought, and and uh, he nurtured certain women at at the same time. He mm -hmm. he is a mixture, uh, a paradox in so many ways. Um, he's a bridging figure, it seems to me. Uh, you talked about his interest in Carl Schmidt, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and but also on figures on the left. He ends up uh, as a kind of new left figure in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, there's that. Uh, and there's, uh, you might want to talk at, at some point also about uh, Paul, uh, St. Paul, because that's part of the bridging in a sense, is talking to different audiences, both Jewish audiences and, and uh, Gentile audiences. Yes. So he was, his father, uh, who himself was a rabbi and a scholar, first in Vienna and then in Zurich, um, his father, who's an Orthodox rabbi uh, and a scholar, uh, had written a doctoral dissertation about uh, Jesus and Talmudic law, and uh, and his and uh, Taub and during the Second World War, Taubus's father, with some assistance from his son, from Jacob Taubus, my subject, um, was involved with many leading. Protestant and Catholic theologians, uh, especially in, in Switzerland, but then more broadly in Europe, uh, who, who were trying to alert the world about the murder of the Jews that were, was going on in um, Central and Eastern Europe. And, and uh, Jacob's father was trying to mobilize these people, these uh, theologians, uh, to speak out on these issues. And as a result, um, Jacob, from very early on, came into contact uh, both with a lot of leading Catholic and Protestant theologians and had a father who had um, already developed an interest in, you might say, the relationship between 
Christianity, between Judaism and Christianity and the transitions between them. And in a very curious way, Jacob, from, from very early on, from at least the time he was about 17, um, came to identify uh, with the Apostle Paul. Uh, and he was fascinated on the one hand by the, the Jewishness of Paul, the extent to which uh, Paul uh, quoted and echoed um, uh, biblical uh, thought. Uh, and also he was very, he was particularly interested in Paul as someone who had sort of taken Judaism and transformed it in a way that made it uh, more universal. Uh, made it uh, attractive to and accessible to a much larger audience. And that interested him from very early on. And then he also became interested in this. And as time went on, he, he developed an interpretation of Paul as the kind of arch rebel uh, or arch revolutionary of the Western tradition. Uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear from the, from, um, uh, Paul's letters, his epistles, that he was in some ways a critic of Jewish law of halacha. At least he was a he was a critic of the notion that people who wanted to join the Christian covenant had to um, obey Jewish law. And he has some very critical things to say about Jewish law and the way in which he thinks it cultivates um, sinful desires. Uh, but Jacob Talbus also made the claim. This was later on in his life um, that that he that uh, Paul had been a arch revolutionary in another sense, in that he had challenged the legitimacy of Roman law, that is, of existing political authorities uh, in Palestine in the first century A.D. and indeed in in um, the Mediterranean more generally. So he made Paul out to be a political radical as well as a religious radical. And uh, he taught courses about Paul on and off um, uh, through much of his career. And towards the very end of his career in early in 1987, he was already uh, dying from, the can from cancer, uh, he gave a series of lectures called the political theology of Paul. And those letters were ultimately, uh, uh, those lectures were ultimately transcribed by a couple with whom he had a very, a couple of scholars, uh, a man and wife with whom he had a very unusual relationship in his final years. And when those lectures were published um, and presented this notion of Paul as sort of the arch radical of the uh, Western tradition, uh, they ended up having a lot of resonance in the 1990s and the 2000s for radical post-communist intellectuals in Europe and the United States. Uh, so his relationship with Paul is one of the uh, extraordinary things about him. From a, from a, Bio biographer's point of view, uh, one might almost say, uh, if Talbis is uh, speaking of Paul as a political and religious radical, that describes Jacob Talbis pretty well, too. Yes, very much. He, um, you know, uh, he's not the only person to have ever done this, but he, in many ways, read his own predilections 
back into that historical source. Uh, but the, uh, the one of the interesting things uh, about his interpretation of Paul was that uh, Jacob Taubus, who was very knowledgeable about the history of Christianity and interested in it and spent lots of time, time in monasteries and things like that, um, he never for a moment seemed to have taken seriously the fundamental theological premises of Paul, um, namely that Jesus was the Messiah and, mm. uh, and that that, trans, that uh, created issues of uh, incarnation and justification and so on. Um, all of those theological premises that were so central to Paul um, neither interested Jacob Talbus. I mean, he didn't find them plausible and he simply didn't dwell upon them in his interpretation of Paul. So he he saw Paul as kind of having used uh, Jesus as uh, an event that could then be interpreted in a way that challenged existing institutions and authority. And, and that was, as I say, attractive to uh, a number of uh, leading leftist intellectuals uh, in the 1990s and beyond, people like um, uh, Giorgio Gambin in Italy or Alain Badieu in France or Zizek uh, all over. Um, yeah, so that was, uh, it, it was partly, uh, as you say, this reading of his own predilections back into Paul and jettisoning the elements of Paul that didn't fit in with his own predilections, but that made Paul attractive to secular radicals. Well, it reminds me um, uh, when the Gore Vidal's novel Burr came out, mm -hmm. um, some people read that novel and they said, well, that's, that's Gore Vidal's Burr. Uh -huh. And my answer to that is, it is, that is, it's a, the novel is a kind of projection into the historical character of Burr, but you could turn that around and you could say there is something about Vidal that's in Burr. That is, there's something that draws those two subjects together, just as Tabas was drawn to Paul. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it has to do in part with this, this, this idea of being a radical. I think we need to get to your title, too, why he's a professor of apocalypse. Uh -huh. OK, um, so uh, Taubus. Uh, in Taubus's, <laughs> one of the curious things about Taubus is that he only published one book during his lifetime, even though he uh, attained positions of prominence at many of the leading universities of the Western world. So at various times, he, um, he taught at uh, Hebrew University in Jerusalem and at Harvard and at Princeton and then for about a decade at Columbia, and then for a couple of decades uh, at the Free University uh, of Berlin. Um, despite the fact that he uh, clearly had a high intellectual profile in a number of countries and in a number of languages, um, he actually published very little. And the one book that he did publish was his doctoral dissertation called uh, Occidental eschatology or Western eschatology, uh, which he published when he was, which he finished when he was 23, um, and which was published shortly thereafter uh, in 1947 when he was when he was 24, and and that book deals with the history of 
um, what you might call uh, antinomian movements in the history of the West, especially in the religious history of the West, but then in its secular history too. And it was pr primar it was primarily concerned with two trends. One is what we call Gnosticism. This was uh, this was a, an intellectual. Um, uh, it, it was a religious trend um, that existed in the early centuries AD, perhaps a bit before that as well, um, that insisted that the world as we know it is the creation of an evil God, uh, that it's fundamentally an, an, an evil and corrupt place, and that there are a few sort of select people who have uh, gnosis or gnosis, that is to say, um, specialized knowledge uh, that sets them apart, that makes them, uh, gives them insight into the real corruption and fallenness and evil of the world and puts them into connection with some higher, better God. Uh, so he was interested in that trend and he was interested in a related trend of apocalypticism, that is the notion that the world um, could be, tr the world and its institutions could be radically transformed and was about to be radically transformed. And these themes of Gnosticism on the one hand and apocalypticism on the other, oh, he also had this idea that uh, the much of the history of the West could be interpreted, at, could be understood as a history of various apocalyptic movements, apocalyptic first religious movements and then secular movements like Marxism that um, were egalitarian, that challenged existing religious and political institutions, and that when 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 those re that those re when they tried to bring off their transformations, uh, these apocalyptic transformations, the results were not quite what they had expected, not as good as what they had expected, as it were, um, but was transformative. And and at that point, he said, when the when the revolution um, or transformation seems to have uh, not been fully successful, then you had this renaissance in each case of Gnosticism, that is this uh, secret or elite knowledge about how corrupt the world was and the spread uh, among small and then ever larger groups of people of this knowledge that then led to another case of apocalypticism. So he, he developed this kind of model of insight, purported insight into the fallenness of the world, and then attempts to radically overcome it. And he taught courses about various elements of this subject, and in many ways, he embodied it himself. That is to say, he too saw the world as a, as a, as a fallen place, uh, as a corrupt place in many respects. Some of this was uh, the aftermath of uh, the Holocaust um, and his interpret and his uh, interpretation of it. Um, some of it was a kind of uh, Marxist analysis of capitalism and false consciousness and so on. And he sometimes subtly and sometimes overtly uh, encouraged his listeners and readers and students to think about radical rebellion that would uh, that would transform this corrupt world and 
uh, at one point, at, at an important point of his life in the later 1960s and early 1970s, uh, when he was a professor at the Free University in Berlin, um, he saw the, the student new left in, in Germany and abroad as a force that might bring about this kind of apocalyptic uh, transformation of, uh, of a corrupt world. Um, in ways that I, and, and there he was, um, he was closely linked with a longtime friend of his, um, Herbert Marcuse, and was in uh, frequent contact with uh, uh, Jürgen Habermas, another um, leading leading uh, German philosopher who was highly sympathetic to the German New Left, though he had his critiques of it as well. Um, in ways that I explained, Taubus eventually became disillusioned with what the triumph of the new left at his university had brought about, but he still retained this, um, this uh, fascination with Gnosticism and apocalypticism, and he saw the Apostle Paul as uh, embodying this um, both, both Gnosticism in the sense of this radical critique of existing law and existing authority and apocalypticism in the sense of uh, thinking he was on the edge of a radically new and improved world. The Taubus, the person, uh, was, uh, we've got a whole range of opinions on this man. Uh, <laughs> yes. a, a renowned Jewish scholar, I don't know if you want to talk about that, who actually seemed to run away at one point when he heard that Taubus was at the door. Yes. And we have Susan Sontag's uh, ex-husband, Philip Reef, who mm -hmm. just out and out said that Taubus was evil. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that? So, um, well, one of, look, part of the strategy of the book is to take this very colorful, charismatic, problematic, risk-taking figure, deal intensely with his biography, but also use that as a way to recapture a lot of these important 20th century debates about um, religious belief versus scholarship, about Jewish particularism and universalism, um, about politics and theology, uh, and so on, and also to recapture the institutions that Taubus was part of. So the, the various um, academic cultures and intellectual cultures in these countries in the 20th century and, and his role as a kind of um, impresario of ideas working together with uh, publishing companies in the United States and especially in Germany, uh, organizing uh, seminars that brought together people of different disciplines and different um, uh, into, and different political orientations to exchange ideas uh, and so on. Uh, but at the, at the core of it is this um, puzzle uh, that you've alluded to of Taubus. Um, it's, uh, it's not, um, it's significant that he suffered from a particular variety of uh, manic depressive uh, illness, um, which was mild until his, uh, till his late forties and then got, uh, more intense for a while and then, uh, recurred to some degree thereafter as well that made him, um, 
in many ways, uh, a risk taker, a risk taker intellectually, but also a risk taker in terms of his um, erotic relationships and in terms of his relationships often to the colleagues and institutions that he was part of. Um, and he was capable of being uh, a great uh, mentor uh, and, and uh, a stimulating colleague, uh, but he was also capable of betrayal and dishonesty. And that was something that at various times, um, Philip Reif and Gershon Scholem, uh, who was uh, one of his um, one of his idols, really, who he went to uh, study and work with in Jerusalem and who eventually became disillusioned with him. Uh, that was something that they both, that treachery was something that they both thought they had experienced. Um, in the case of Philip Reif, um, for those who don't know, Philip Reif was a, was a sociologist um, who in the 1950s uh, had a position uh, in the early to mid-1950s, had a position at uh, Brandeis University when he was a young man. Um, he was at the time working on a book uh, called The Mind of the Moralist, which was uh, an, interpretation, uh, an interpretation of Freud. And he was married to uh, Susan Sontag, who he met when, she, when uh, she was 17 and he was about a decade older. And they got married after, I think, about... 10 days in the, and had a rather extraordinarily intense relationship, intense um, intellectually and emotionally, uh, not so much apparently erotically. Uh, and Philip Reif, uh, at the time that he was teaching sociology at Brandeis, was also functioning as a paid advisor at Beacon Press. Uh, Beacon Press was the official uh, publication arm of the uh, Unitarian Universalist Church, uh, but it was under the direction of a fellow by the name of Melvin Arnold, it was increasingly turning to uh, more intellectual publication, and Reef was an advisor there. And uh, he introduced, and at the time, in the mid-1950s, Jacob and his wife Susan Taubus, uh, were living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, Jacob was uh, teaching courses at Harvard uh, as a lecturer, and his wife, Susan Taubus, was uh, pursuing a doctorate in religion there. And another person pursuing a doctorate in religion there was Susan Sontag, who the Taubuses became, and the Taubuses became very close to her and became very close to her husband, uh, Philip Reef. And the four of them were also very close to uh, Herbert Marcuse, who at the time uh, was a kind of unattached scholar working on a book, uh, Eros and Civilization, that would ultimately be published by Beacon Press in a series edited by Jacob Taubus. Well, at one point, uh, the publisher, uh, our, um, Melvin Arnold became, uh, was getting more suspicious about Taubus and Taubus came to see him and said, uh, why, why don't you have me replace Philip, Philip Reef? Uh, and Philip 
Reef was sitting in an office in the back room and uh, somehow uh, Arnold put it, put Talbus on speaker or something like that. And uh, so, so that, uh, so that Philip Reef could hear him in the back room and he heard Talbus trying to take over his position. Uh, and that led him to a uh, suspicion of Talbus as, as did the fact that it became clear that Talbus was trying to bed his wife, that is to say, Susan Sontag. Um, and uh, that and other observations of Taubus uh, led Philip Reef to, to conclude that Taubus was indeed a uh, fundamentally corrupt and evil person. In the case of Gershon Scholem, who was a major influence on Taubus and who was the great scholar of Jewish mysticism and Jewish messianism, um, that was a more complex relationship. Uh, uh, and in the end, and uh, Sholem, like many people who worked with Taubus, thought that Taubus was a person of tremendous talent and tremendous ability. Uh, but he thought that Taubus uh, frittered away that uh, talent and ability instead of engaging in um, solid uh, scholarship. Uh, and they be Sholem became disillusioned. Um, because of a, uh, another kind of event um, in which Taubus seems to have uh, seems to have betrayed uh, to one of Sholem's students something that um, Sholem told Taubus privately, uh, and uh, Sholem came to see that as evidence of Taubus's treachery as well. And there are other there are quite a few other such <laughs> cases in Taubus's life, and and. Um, you know, I interviewed uh, about a hundred people who knew Jacob Taubus between his bar mitzvah in Vienna in 1936 and his death in Berlin in 1987. And I read um, hundreds of letters uh, by Jacob Taubus uh, and many second and uh, quite a few secondary accounts and so on. And um, that allowed me to put together. Uh, I think a picture of this person in his complexity, uh, both in terms of his uh, remarkable linguistic and intellectual intellectual abilities, and in terms of his some of some of his more um, negative character traits, uh, including this this risk taking propensity, uh, which included uh, when you take the risk taking propensity and you put it together with his um, his antinomianism, his challenging of the rules and so on. Um, it often led to uh, attempts to bed a wide variety of women, including married women, uh, wives of his colleagues and so on, uh, that led them to a great deal of suspicion of him. At the same time, as you suggest, as you noted early on, um, he, was, uh, he was very interested in intellectual women and in developing their uh, intellectual abilities and their careers, uh, and was quite a promoter of the, um, of the careers of some of the women who he came into contact with. It's, um, it had to have been quite a um, task. Uh, you mentioned all the people you interviewed. You're interviewing people who uh, were fond of him, who liked him, who were friends. Uh, people he befriended, people who he betrayed, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the whole range. One of the things that makes your biography fascinating, what I tried to convey in my New York Sun review of it, is is uh, the subtitle is not an exaggeration. It's many lives mm-hmm. uh, of, of one man uh, who, you know, in a sense, traverses the world. He's, he's kind of a epic in himself uh, from his, his trajectory uh, from Europe to the United States to Israel, back to Europe. Uh, it's quite an odyssey. Yes, it became clear to me from early on that, as I say, Taubes didn't publish that much. And yet a lot of people seem to have been, not only to have known him, but to have been affected by him in one way or another. So it was clear to me that um, a good deal of his influence was through his, his person and through his persona. And that I was only going to, I was partly able to get at that through his letters, but I was only really going to be able to get at that by talking to the people who he, he had interacted with and fought with and befriended and loved and and so on. And, uh, and uh, it was in early uh, 2004 that I really started on the project and uh, given... Uh, the, given the effects of age, it was clear to me that a lot of these people might not be around too much longer. So from 2004 to 2006, um, I conducted uh, as many interviews as I could, uh, sometimes on the phone, but often in person in, um, in the United States and in Israel and in various cities in Germany and in Paris and in Zurich, and uh, and often that brought me into contact with a remarkable range of 20th century intellectuals who, uh, like Jürgen Habermas, I spent several hours with him and his wife at their home in Starnberg, and uh, a number of leading Israeli intellectuals who I got to know, and uh, and uh, also people uh, on the right, uh, Ernst Nolte, a German historian. Um, who uh, was an important right-wing figure and so on. So that interview process uh, was really an indispensable part of trying to recapture this uh, enigmatic personality. And and uh, in terms of what you said, one of the fascinating things about Talbis is there are many people who were who were in who who he befriended who found him highly stimulating, um, who sometimes found him a a source of ideas that had been important for them, but who ultimately at one point or another became disillusioned with them, either through disillusioned with him, either through some act of betrayal or because they concluded that there wasn't as much solidity to his ideas as they had originally thought. Um, And so, uh, the line between um, uh, his friends and his enemies uh, or his critics was often a fleeting one. <laughs> yeah, I want to I bring this full circle as a way of maybe concluding this podcast. Mm-hmm. You mentioned at the beginning that you met him. You spent something, I think you said an hour with him. Yes. Now you've done all this work on him. Mm-hmm. As you reflect back on your, your one meeting with him, um, did you see, how much of that did you see? You probably didn't see as much, obviously as much as you saw when you actually went to work on him, so to speak. For sure, for sure. For one thing, I came to th- recognize that in retrospect, uh, 
Um, uh, as I mentioned, he he had uh, manic depression, and I think uh, at the moment that I met him, um, he was in one of his not deep depressive moods, but more subdued moods, as opposed to his more effervescent moods. But even then, he uh, he was capable of saying things that were highly unexpected, um, but perhaps insightful. So when we talked about this uh, seminar that he had done with Maimonides that included Irving Kristol and Gertrude Himmelfarb, he said um, she was the smarter of the two. <laughs> now, I, uh, I don't think that Irving Kristol would disagree with that. Um, she, <laughs> she was really brilliant. But at the time, you know, Irving Kristol was one of the most prominent intellectuals uh, really in the United States. Um, yes. And uh, this was in 1980. Um, he was sort of the godfather of neoconservatism. Um, Gertrude Himmelfarb was was known to intellectual historians, but not to a broader public. So it was an kind of unexpected um, judgment and thing to say. Uh, and that was kind of typical of Taubes. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can, I can imagine that. Is there anything else I should have asked you? Uh well, you know there there are many um, <laughs> there are many sides to the book. Uh, uh, I think you've I think we've uh, touched upon at least more or less all of them. Yeah, well, thank you. I, it was just a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, I certainly recommend your biography highly. I think you've really negotiated a lot of difficulties that, uh, especially someone who's written biographies, can appreciate. Thank you very much, Carl. Thank you. I'm going to be posting this podcast shortly as soon as it's processed by Anchor. And uh, I will send you a link and I will post it on Facebook and Twitter and you can broadcast to the world. <laughs> okay, I will. I will be doing that. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye.